Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for giving us your son. We thank you for leaving your spirit who guides us into all truth, who is our helper, who is our equipper, who is our comforter. And I pray this morning that your spirit who wrote this word would now illuminate this word in our minds and in our hearts so that we can understand it and we can walk in it in truth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Be turning in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9 and verse 46, where we'll read our text in just a moment. We're closing in on the end of this chapter, uh, but there is still a lot of good stuff here. And so I'm excited uh, for this morning. As you're turning to Luke chapter 9, let me explain the title of today's message. If you have your message notes, you can see it there. It has become a popular slang to refer to someone as GOAT, G-O-A-T, when they are exceptional in their field of expertise. So G-O-A-T stands for greatest of all time, all right, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Usually when that term is used, it's used to refer to some exceptional athlete but it can be used in other ways as well. So let's, let's run through a couple of examples so you see how this works, all right? Uh, who is the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time in professional basketball? Clearly, it's Michael Jordan. Come on, folks, right? Some of the young kids say Shaquille O'Neal. Sorry, not sorry. It will always be uh, Michael Jordan. He was the greatest of all time. All right, what about women's tennis? Serena Williams, okay, I think I would agree with that. I think unquestionably the accolades would would go to her. She's unstoppable, uh, even by her sister, uh, Venus Williams. All right, let's do one that's not sports. Who would you say is the greatest of all time when it comes to being a painter or an artist? Picasso, Leonardo da Vinci, maybe. Raphael, I mentioned last week in our sermon, okay? What about a playwright? William Shakespeare probably would be the greatest of all time when you think about uh, a playwright. What about a composer? Say it loud. Beethoven? Bach, maybe? Uh, Mozart, okay? What about when you think about science or physics? Albert Einstein, right? Probably the greatest of all times. He is pointed out to be the most brilliant scientist of the modern age. Last one, did you know that there is even a self-proclaimed greatest of all time in the field of boxing? Muhammad Ali, right? He was a great American boxer, a three-time world heavyweight champion, and he once said, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Nothing like a little self-confidence, huh? Greatest of all time. There are lots of greatest of all times. But as a Christian, how should we measure greatness? 
And is there someone who is the real greatest of all time, the greatest of all greats? Well, I think there is, and I think you know who I think it is, uh, but we're going to find out in our text today, okay? So follow along as I read. I'm in Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 46 to 48. An argument arose among them, that's the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Now there's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18 uh, that I want to read as well. You don't have to turn there. The words are going to be up on the screen. uh, And I think it gives just a little bit more insight into this passage. Matthew 18 verses 1 to 4 reads, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there you have it. Go back to Luke chapter 9. If you're still there, leave your text open there. Let's work our way through this and understand what Jesus says about being the greatest of all time. Look again at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Okay, These 12 disciples are on their way to Capernaum, Mark tells us. And on the way to Capernaum, they descend into an embarrassing disagreement over which of them was the greatest. Now, you have to ask the question, first off, the greatest what? What are they even arguing about? Are they arguing over who has the most authority? Are they arguing over who's the greatest in terms of who's received the most preferable treatment from Jesus? Are they arguing over who's the most valuable among the group? Maybe they're arguing about what it means to be the greatest by being the most favored by God. We're not told exactly what started this argument, nor on what basis they're deciding who is the greatest, but they're having a legit argument over this. They're looking at each other, trying to figure out who's the greatest. Now, I can imagine that Peter uh, may have started this and began to argue that he was the greatest because he was the one who correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, which perhaps irritated James and John because they were there with Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. So maybe they said, well, hold up. I mean, we kind of think we're the greatest. We were there as well. We, we've seen Jesus in his transfigured state, which probably got Andrew uh, all riled up because he was the one who brought the little boy to Jesus 
to feed the 5,000 men plus women and children, which is considered one of great, Jesus' greatest earthly miracles. So maybe he says, you know what, I ought to be uh, the greatest of all time. Well, that probably annoyed Matthew because Matthew, being the former tax collector, said, well, if you would have given me just a little bit of time, I know how to work the financial systems in this town. I could have figured out how to buy meals for all of those people. Well, that probably incited Judas because he took it upon himself to point out to Matthew that Jesus assigned the money back to him and not to Matthew. Judas, of course, we know was stealing from the money bag, but he could have claimed, look, I'm the greatest of all time. Jesus, entrust me with this. Here's this big argument that's breaking out among these 12 guys. We don't know all the details. I'm just speculating, but it's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's unbecoming of disciples of Jesus Christ. And the fact that they're having this argument to begin with means that every one of them had some level of what in his heart? Pride. Pride. John Piper once said, Pride is the enemy inside us that speaks to us like a friend. Interesting. Peter, you deserve the title. You're the greatest. You're the leader. James, John, you deserve the title. You know what? I bet if you ask, Jesus would let you sit on his left hand and on his right hand, which is exactly what they have their mother ask later. Pride, J.C. Ryle says, Loves to climb up, not down. To take the highest places. To have the first seats. Pride hates to submit, to bow, to stoop, to confess that we are nothing, to receive help as paupers. Of all creatures, I would argue that humans have less reason to be proud than even the animals or the dirt. At least they never rebelled against their creator. The disciples are just teeming with pride. Considering the fact that just a couple days earlier, Jesus had told them that he must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day and be raised, and considering the fact that just yesterday, Jesus had reminded them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It is shocking and unbelievably disappointing that they have quickly dismissed the fate of Jesus and are instead concerned only for their own. On the one hand, we see the marvelous self-sacrifice of Jesus being predicted. And on the other hand, we witness nothing but base self-centeredness in the hearts and mouths of these disciples. Remarkably sad. 
It's equally shocking and equally repulsive when you and I allow our hearts to run in that same direction. Where have you allowed pride to reign in your heart? If you're not sure and you're married, just ask your spouse. They'll tell you. If you're a parent, just ask your kid. They will tell you. They'll know. But if you're still unsure, you don't know if, in fact, you have pride in your heart, let me give you just a few evidences that Stuart Scott points out in his book, From Pride to Humility. Here's the first one that he says. If you lack gratitude in general, you're probably a proud person. Because proud people think they deserve what is good. Therefore, they see no reason to be thankful for it. Are you an angry person? You're probably also proud because your rights and your expectations are not being met. Do you talk too much? Proud people who talk too much often do it because they think what they have to say is more important than what anybody else has to say. Are you easily devastated? Or angered by criticism? Because proud people cannot bear that they are not perfect or have weaknesses. They can't accept who they really are. And lastly, a proud person rarely asks for forgiveness. They either cannot see their sin because they're blinded by their pride, or they just can't seem to humble themselves before anyone else and ask forgiveness. Pride is sneaky. It shows up in many, many ways. These disciples were proud, but sadly, we're not so unlike them, are we? Luke goes on to say, Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. And stop right there for just a second. You should know that Jesus knows every motive behind every word, every thought, every argument, every defense that we ever make. He knows everything behind it. We can't even always analyze why we do what we do. But Jesus knows it all. When we look at our hearts, even our own thoughts are often tainted by sin. But Jesus can see perfectly the motives of our heart. There's a famous commentator named Matthew Henry. Some of you probably own his commentaries. Wonderful. He's old dead guy, but some of the best commentaries. He once said this, Jesus Christ is perfectly acquainted with the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Thoughts, he says, are words to him, and whispers are loud cries. He goes on to say, it is a good reason why we should keep up a strict government of our thoughts, because Christ takes a strict comprehension of them. In Jeremiah 17.10, we read, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 
Hebrews 4.13 echoes the same thought. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus listened to this argument that was going on among his disciples and he knew he was going to have to correct their faulty thinking. So he took a child and he put the child by his side. Now you need to know that in those days when Jesus did this, children were viewed very poorly in in first century Greco-Roman society. Children were really considered property of their fathers, and, and the father could decide everything about them. He had total control over his children's fate, whether they were kept, whether they were discarded, or whether they were even killed. Philosophers at the time viewed children as incomplete. Therefore, children, they believed, needed very strict discipline and education so that they could be molded into virtuous adults. Children were supposed to be seen, but never heard. When Jesus comes along, he changes all of that. Jesus loved children. Over and over again, Jesus demonstrates his love and his kindness toward children. He just loved being around little kids. In fact, one time he scolded his disciples who were trying to keep the children away from him. And Jesus said, let them come to me. Jesus turns culture's understanding of children in his day completely on his head. And Jesus takes this little child and he puts him by his side. That's a place of prominence and honor. And in effect, Jesus is saying to his disciples, the least of persons in society is greater than you. Oof. This little child, the least of all in society, is greater than you. That had to be humbling. Why did Jesus love children so much? Why did he make a remark like this? Because children reveal spiritual characteristics that Jesus is seeking in those who follow him. I want to give you at least seven characteristics, and we're going to go through these pretty quickly if you're taking notes. Seven characteristics that define children characteristics that Jesus desires to see in you and me and his disciples. Number one, children display a willingness to seek help. When children face a task or or a challenge that they can't handle on their own, what do they do? They bring it to their parent. They they bring it to their caregiver. They recognize their limitations and and they humbly ask for help. There's, There's no shame in that. If they need help, they need help. And they just come and say, Dad, will you help me with this? Number two, children quickly own their mistakes. When I was a kid, we used to spend a lot of time at Grandma's house. And uh, I remember one time grandma telling us uh, that we could go gather the chicken eggs if she was with us, okay? Because grandma knew 
that staying calm and quiet in the chicken house would keep the chickens calm and quiet, and therefore they would lay eggs. Well, one day my cousin and I decided that we would sneak into the chicken house, and we were anything but quiet that day. We decided it would be really fun to chase the chickens around in the chicken house. And we just chased them around and their wings were flapping and they were squawking and there were feathers flying around and sawdust blowing up in the air. It was a blast. (laughs) But you know what? When grandma went to gather the eggs the next time, there were none there. Grandma asked me the next time we were at her house, Sean, were you in the chicken house without me? Immediate guilt. Immediate regret. I'm sorry, Grandma. Pretty sure I got spanked that day. But children own their mistakes, usually pretty quickly. At least when they're really little... That begins to change over time when they discover the power of lies. But initially, they own it. Number three, children generally follow instructions. Children display this dependency that you don't see in adults. When, when a teacher or a parent or a caregiver tells a child, go stand over there, line up here, don't do this, do that, children will unconsciously recognize that others have knowledge and experience and authority they don't, so they they follow the instruction. They accept that guidance. Fourthly, children often display gratitude for even the smallest things that you give them. If you give a child a a lollipop or you tell them it's time for ice cream, there's this huge grin, there's a smile, there's this deep sense of appreciation because they can't get those things themselves. They depend upon the generosity of others. Number five, children cooperate with others on a team. When my son Matthew played Little League baseball this summer, his favorite position to play was third base. But he quickly realized he needed all those teammates on his team in order for them to even have a chance of winning, right? Children tend to work together and have that appreciation. As adults, we like to go it alone. I don't, I don't need anybody's help. Leave me alone. I'll do it myself. We change as we get older. Number six, children recognize their weaknesses without feeling ashamed or discouraged. I could take any five-year-old here with me uh, to the gym and say, here, lift up this 50-pound dumbbell. They wouldn't be able to do it. I can barely do it. There's no way they could lift up the 50 pounds. And they would just look at me and they would say, I can't. There's no embarrassment there. It's just a, a realization, I cannot do that. Right, A child will bring you his Coke bottle and say, I can't get the lid off. Right, There's a recognition of their weaknesses without feeling ashamed. They need someone who's stronger, who's more capable, who can handle the task. And finally, number seven, children are quick to display empathy and compassion toward others. When a little kid sees mom or dad crying, 
they often begin crying themselves and they'll just come up and they'll, they'll give you a hug and they'll say something like, it's okay, it's okay. Those characteristics are not characteristics of every kid every time. I get it. But generally speaking, those are the ways that children live. They don't know if they're rich or poor. They don't know if they have a better house or a lesser house. They have no idea of status or rank or class or otherwise. They just look dependently and obediently toward their caregivers. Now, aside from admitting mistakes because Jesus was sinless and he never had to admit a mistake, Jesus displayed these characteristics perfectly toward his father. Jesus continually sought help from his father. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father in heaven. Jesus showed perfect gratitude and appreciation for all he had. Jesus was willing to be part of a a team. He called it a family. And he calls you and I his brothers and sisters. Jesus never shied away from revealing his dependence on his father. Think about the prayers that he often prayed on his own to his father in heaven. And Jesus demonstrated perfect empathy and compassion for those who came to him. Friend, the short and simple of the matter is this. Jesus is the greatest of all time. There is no other person who comes close to comparing to the amazing Messiah, the one without an ounce of sinful pride in his life. In fact, he humbled himself all the way to a cross where he died for you and I. He took the punishment. And he rose again victorious over sin and death and Satan. And today he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way to a right relationship with God the Father. And if you will repent of your sin and place your faith in me, you can be my brother and sister too. That message of the gospel goes out far and wide. And in an effort to break his disciples of their pride, Jesus takes this child, stands him next to him, and says in verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Do you see the logic there? Jesus means the message is greater than the messenger. Even if the message comes from a little child, Jesus is offering himself to the world in that message, in his name. The main thing, Jesus says, is not the giver of the message, but it is the God of the message. So I kind of wonder if he looked at his disciples and said, get over yourselves. Just stop it already. It doesn't matter who among you is the greatest. What matters is the message preached. I am the greatest. 
I am the most important. And if you will receive the message of me, Jesus says, even from this child, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me, that is, the Father in heaven. So it depends not upon the messenger. It depends on the message. That should be a humbling thought for every one of us, for me, for you, and especially every preacher out there. I know there's such a thing as a, a celebrity preacher, but one of the uh, com- one commentator made this remark: there should be no famous preachers, only a famous savior. I love that. To the degree that you or I or any preacher tries to build his own kingdom we will face the same rebuke that Jesus gives here to the disciples. Our mission is singular. Our mission is not about proclaiming me. It is about proclaiming Jesus. My hope is that you fall in love with him, not with me or with any other person for that matter. You fall in love with Jesus. Jesus finishes the end of this verse in 48 by saying, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. How do you measure greatness in this life? Well, Jesus said it is the one who is least among you. What does that mean? Well, that word least there has nothing to do with rank or talent or importance, but rather it refers to the one most willing to humble himself in order to serve others. Here's how Jesus said it in Mark chapter 9. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You catch it there? He must be last of all and he must be servant of all. We used to sing this little song when I was a kid. It went, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, surely this must mean Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. How many of you know that song? The servant of Jesus considers himself dead last. Jesus first, I'm last, everybody else is in between. It's the attitude that Paul describes in Philippians 2 when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Christians have long understood this admonition, and it is our aim in life to serve Christ by serving others. Others, if you look back on the long history of Christendom, you will see a pattern of Christians displaying this kind of servanthood. In fact, several examples, the establishment of hospitals can largely be traced to Christian charity. 
Christians knew that they were supposed to take care of the sick. And that, in fact, that's why you see lots of hospitals today with Christian names like St. Mary's or Methodist Hospital, begun by Christians. Christians have been on the forefront of orphan care for centuries now. Just this week, I gave a reference check to a couple wanting to be foster parents. I'm excited to do that because that's what Christians do. They serve those. Many educational institutions were founded as a result of Christian charity because they were driven by the belief in the importance of education because Christians should desire to know how to study God's word and how to study God's creation. And so they educated people. Here in our own country, you might not even know about Harvard and Yale who are far on secular institutions today, originally began as theological institutions. They believed in the power of education. Social service agencies were often started by Christians. Within our own denomination, we have the Mennonite Disaster Service that travels around and helps people after storm damage. Christians have long understood this command here to serve others as the primary way we follow the example of our Lord and our King. So let me ask you, is life for you primarily to be served or to serve? And if you now understand that Jesus here is calling for you to serve, what does that look like in your life? How are you going to serve? That can look a lot of different ways. That can take on a lot of different forms. We talked about two of them this morning. We're recruiting people to help us for Day for Hope so that we can help get a bunch of kids back to school on the first day. We, we just talked this morning about giving blood so other people can literally have the life that comes in our blood. I would just encourage you, don't make Scott and Jeannie and Janelle have to come beg you to help them. We ought to be flooding places like that to serve. You might find another way to serve, and that's fine. There are lots of ways to serve. Opportunities are endless. But Jesus says, The greatest among you is the least, the one who's humbled himself to serve others. I want to finish this morning with this Dutch poem written by a guy named Richard Trench. And I hope that this is the prayer that's on your heart today when you leave. It goes like this. Make me, O Lord, a child again, so tender, frail, and small, in self possessing nothing, and in thee possessing all. O Savior, make me small once more, that downward I may grow, and in this heart of mine restore the faith of long ago. With thee may I be crucified, no longer I that lives, O Savior, crush my sinful pride by grace, which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to thy call, in self possessing nothing, and in thee possessing all. Will you stand with me?
Father, thank you for recording this in your word so that we don't go running around comparing ourselves with ourselves to figure out who's the greatest, to promote ourselves, to make ourselves great. But instead, Father, that we would humble ourselves, we would root out pride in our heart, and we would look to Jesus, the perfect example of greatness, the greatest of all time, Jesus Christ. And that in following him, we would follow his example to serve others. We would lay down our lives for others, our spouses, our kids, our coworkers, our classmates. Father, I pray that our lives at the end would be noted for the way that we serve. Father, not that we're looking for that praise, but I pray that every single one of us, when our funeral sermon is given, people look at us and say, that guy, that gal served. They didn't look for praise. They didn't look for the accolades. They did it because they loved their Lord. Father, that we would be that kind of people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.